Welcome to Honorable Mentions, the podcast produced and distributed by the Shackles Honors College at Mississippi State University. My name is Wade Leonard. I am the Outreach Coordinator at the Honors College, and I am very happy today to be joined by Dr. Christopher Snyder. Dr. Christopher Snyder is the current and first dean of the Shackles Honors College at Mississippi State University, a position he has held since 2011. He is a professor of European history and is regarded as one of the world's foremost experts on J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis. He is the author of several books, which include The Making of Middle Earth, Hobbit Virtues, Gatsby's Oxford, and The Britons. He is a faculty fellow at the University of Oxford in England, where he has lectured and taught American honor students. He has lectured frequently at the Smithsonian Institution, and he is a appeared on the History Channel, the Learning Channel, the National Geographic Channel, and BBC Television and Radio. In other words, he's a super fancy guy. <laughs> hey, Dr. Snyder, how you doing, sir? I'm good. Thanks for having me, Wade. Well, thank you for allowing me to do this. Um, well, uh, you know, I went through your list of credentials there, and they're you know, they're impressive to me <laughs> anyway. I, I, I would like you to, to kind of tell me a little bit about your position here in the Honors College, what it means to be a dean of the Honors College, and sure. um, you know, maybe just a brief sort of history of, of what we've got here. Sure. So I am the founding dean of the Shackles Honors College and a professor of history at Mississippi State, and both of those things are important, equally important. Um, so a dean of an Honors College ought to be a scholar and a teacher as well, and and not only am I those things, but I enjoy those things. So I, I teach regularly, and I'm teaching this semester course on C.S. Lewis. Um, I have a academic background that is primarily in medieval history uh, as a scholar of the early Middle Ages, um, especially of Britain in the, in the early medieval period, history and archaeology, um, but I've also written a good deal in Arthurian studies, um, literary criticism, especially in something we call medievalism, which is a reimagining of the Middle Ages, uh, which, of course, Tolkien and Lewis did, as well as F. Scott Fitzgerald, which a lot of people don't know. And so my, my book on Fitzgerald looked at the medievalism in F. Scott Fitzgerald's writings, especially The Great Gatsby. Um, people who know me also know that I love Oxford, England, and that I'm there uh, quite a bit. This is the first time in 15 years that I, that I haven't been able to, to get over there. Uh, so I... I was a fellow from 2014 to 2019 in the history faculty doing research at Oxford, and um, I, I do quite a bit of writing and thinking about Oxford as well. You know, Oxford, ironically or not, is really closely associated with the Shackles Honors College, which is at Mississippi State University, obviously. How did your relationship with Oxford begin? Because you're, you know, frankly, the whole reason we have such a close relationship with Oxford. Yeah, so my previous institution um, had been asking me for years to start a study abroad program somewhere in England, and um, I really kind of uh, dragged my feet on that one. I didn't want to kind of uh, be responsible for all the things that necessarily go on in a study abroad in, in another country and all the logistics and, and you know field trips and stuff. Um, but I, we found this really good partner at the University of Oxford. Um, who uh, are a liaison for the colleges there and just do a lot of those logistics so that faculty members like me um, who go over and, and other of our faculty can just do teaching and research um, and, and spend our time in those areas. So I had started uh, this program at another institution in about 2007 
and been doing that for a few years. And so when I came to Mississippi State in 2011, I brought that program with me. So we're, we're uh, now in our 10th year of the Oxford program, the Shackles Summer Study at the University of Oxford, which is a, basically a six-week um, program that begins right after graduation here at Mississippi State. We take students to Oxford, England, when it's still their term time, their spring term, and uh, they they get to study as Oxford students for six weeks. It's it's one of the the unique factors of the Shackles Honors College is that that study abroad specific study abroad trip is available to any student who is an honor student. Is that correct? That that's right. Um, we take students uh, from all sorts of majors, all sorts of backgrounds, and uh, usually sophomores and, and above um, for six weeks in which they get to be associate students um, at the University of Oxford and members of a college at Oxford because Oxford and Cambridge have the collegiate model. They have these communities broken up into different colleges. And when you're in a college, it's sort of like being at Hogwarts. Uh, It looks a lot like Hogwarts, uh, at least the movie version, because they filmed some of the movies were filmed at Oxford. But uh, being a member of a college means you get to dine in those fancy college dining halls. You get to use the library, use the chapel, use the college bar. All of those things come as being a a, a regular student at Oxford. And by going in term time, our students get that that privilege um, as opposed to going in the middle of the summer when Oxford uh, is out of session and it's more kind of just tourist. For those who who aren't familiar, why is why should anybody care about Shackles' relationship with Oxford and access to Oxford? Like, what is this Oxford thing anyway? Yeah, well, this is a timely question because yesterday, the Times Higher Education um, uh, supplement came out, uh, and it has a world rankings that they do every year of higher education institutions, and Oxford was ranked number one in the world for the fifth year in a row. Uh, So Oxford above Harvard, Princeton, Yale, you name it, Oxford University is in the news these days for the remarkable work they're doing on a a vaccine for the coronavirus. And uh, a lot of people think of Oxford as humanities based. Uh, They don't realize that it's a major research university, one of the, the top centers in the world for world health, uh, epidemiology, this kind of thing. And uh, so they, they do well in research, teaching, all the categories across the board and, and have been rewar- rewarded with that, that ranking. Um, so our students, again, get, get that opportunity. And uh, not, not every student does. When I was their age in college, I couldn't have dreamt of somebody giving me a scholarship to go to the University of Oxford. I mean, that, that's really a, a big deal. And we're very, very proud of our, our program and our affiliation with them. And you mentioned scholarships. You know, that's another thing that is remarkable about the Honors College is that there are funds available to make this financially possible for students to be able to do, right? Yeah. So our students are eligible from scholarships that range from about $2,000 uh, for the for the average uh, uh, undergraduate who goes. Uh, some students have other scholarship packages that are a little bit more. So it, it makes um, a program in Western Europe in general is, is more expensive than other parts of the world. Usually uh, it makes that, that program a lot more affordable, uh, especially when coming with that fee is housing and university privileges, library privileges. Oxford has one of the greatest libraries in the world, the Bodleian Library. Uh, of course, one of the oldest libraries. Oxford is the oldest 
university in the English-speaking world. Uh, it's probably the third officially university in the world um, that got that title. Uh, so it's been doing this stuff since the 12th century and doing it pretty well. You know, we talk a lot about Oxford and for good reason, but I think it's important to note that when we talk about study abroad at the Honors College, Oxford is by no stretch of the imagination the only place we send students. Is that correct? That's right. I think we've, we've had students on just about every continent doing doing uh, undergraduate research, doing study abroad, sometimes both um, internships, community engagement. Uh, we, we have special relationships with the University of Oxford and the University of Glasgow um, through the Honors College. So those are two things that, that we're directly partnering with them. Um, but student, our students also go on programs sponsored by other colleges and departments at the university uh, or third-party providers. Um, if it's an academic experience that the university uh, uh, recognizes with academic credits, then we don't just encourage that. But again, we have scholarship money available for it. That's fantastic. So yeah, I think it's safe to call you an Anglophile. Mostly, yeah, mostly <laughs> true. What is it about that particular part of the world and that particular time period in terms of the the Middle Ages fascinates you so much? Yeah, so I first um, kind of fell in love with the Middle Ages through Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, a lot of honor students can relate, I think, to to that. What was your uh, character? I was always dungeon master. Okay, good deal. Me <laughs> too. Why, Me too. That's actually. why I'm dean. Is uh, <laughs> I, I wanted to I wanted to create a world and run the world. Um, so I was a DM, but I, I played that for maybe a couple of years, and that was a entree for for me into medieval literature, uh, especially Arthurian literature uh, and history. So that I really you know started thinking more about the Middle Ages when I was in high school. And when I got to college, had some some remarkable teachers and mentors who um, convinced me that I knew how to write and think about historical things and that the Middle Ages was a vast world and a fascinating world. Um, one of my mentors was a professor of Scottish history, and he kind of connected me to the to the Celtic fringe, um, to the world of Ireland, Scotland and Wales. So I, I ended up specializing in that that part of the Middle Ages. And, you know, among some circles anyway, you're argue although that you're you're a historian by trade, you're arguably more famous for your work you've done on Tolkien. And how did that come about? Dungeons yes. and Dragons? <laughs> um, not so much. I I read a little bit of Tolkien um and C. S. Lewis's fiction as a teenager, but not a whole lot. Uh, it really wasn't until college I started reading their scholarship um, about the Middle Ages. Both of these writers, many people know they were friends and colleagues at Oxford, but not not many people know that they were professional medievalists uh, like like me. Uh, that they devoted their career to the middle study of the Middle Ages, uh, Tolkien to the language, uh, the philology of uh, early Old English, Middle English, um, and and this early literature. Lewis um, to basically medieval and Renaissance literature, um, but but they had a lot of 
uh, overlap in what they taught and and things that they really enjoyed the the literature of the barbarians uh the anglo-saxons the vikings the celts especially um called out to lewis and tolkien so I, again i was reading that the primary sources and i was reading lewis and tolkien's work on those primary sources so you know eventually in my career i got around to looking at uh you know writing about other medievalists and thinking about the way they uh, thought about uh, the Middle Ages. And when I wrote my first Tolkien book uh, it, back in uh, about 2013, I think, um, I, had start, I had started that project years earlier uh, when I started going to Oxford uh, with students. And I thought, well, you know, a lot of literature professors write about Tolkien uh, and the literature that he studied. But as a historian, what, what can history and archaeology say about Middle Earth, you know, what things interested Tolkien from the history and archaeology side of it, and you know, what has history and archaeology since he died in 1973 told us about the world of the Anglo-Saxons, the Vikings, and the Celts? And what do they tell us about them? <laughs> <laughs> well, that it's even more colorful than than Tolkien imagined. Um, archaeology, so there have been major archaeological um, finds, uh, especially in the Anglo-Saxon. Um, period in, uh, in in the last uh, two or three decades, um, gold hordes, coin hordes, weapons, uh, helmets. I mean, it's just amazing objects that uh, you know you may see in described in Beowulf uh, or described in uh, in the Lord of the Rings, and then we pull these objects out of the ground, and it's just you know it's great stuff. In uh, the on the Celtic side of things, it, it, because most of the Celtic-speaking peoples in the early Middle Ages uh, were Christian. Um, they did not bury with grave goods, so we don't find those exciting things. But the places they inhabited are excavated, and they're fascinating. Places like hill forts, um, these fortified hilltops that were protecting them against the barbarians who were invading the British Isles. Uh, you know, I, I did a lot of research in my dissertation and my early publications about those hill forts and different uh, different different habitations of, of the Celtic speaking peoples. Yeah, I think like a lot of people, I discovered Lord of the Rings when I was you know in high school, and I got pretty obsessed with those books for, <laughs> for a while. Uh, which book's your favorite out of the the stuff Tolkien's done? And maybe it's not even one of the the Lord of the Rings books. Maybe it's the work he did at another area. Yeah, that's that's a that's a really hard one. I and I read The Hobbit early on. And then I started reading The Lord of the Rings and kind of got bogged down in the Hobbit talk at the beginning of uh, The Fellowship of the Ring. There's no action. They're just, you know, they're walking, talking, singing, eating, taking baths. Having 11 Zs. <laughs> yes, exactly. And so I was like, ah, this is, you know, it's hard to get through. Um, so it, it took a while for me to, to really get into. I, I really, as a teenager, um, enjoyed the writings of T.H. White, um, who wrote the, the Sword and the Stone, the Once Future King. So I kind of thought White was the best writer, and that Lewis and Tolkien were not as good. And uh, it took me until I, I became a professional to realize just how much Tolkien knew the the skills he possessed and the subtleties of his of his writings, and to really appreciate it. So I, I look at the the three books of the Lord of the Rings as one book is the way Tolkien intended it. Um, so it's hard to pick one of those three. Um, the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings and the Silmarillion, those are very different 
types of, of writings, and they're all great for what they're trying to do. So I think more than favorite books, I have favorite characters. Okay, so who's your favorite character? Who are your favorite characters, rather? Yeah, so I think Samwise is my favorite Hobbit. Uh, Sam is by no means perfect. He doesn't start out with an elevated position in society. He's basically a gardener and a servant. Um, and he shows tremendous growth and a sense of adventure and service and sacrifice and this kind of uh, steady progress forward. Uh, re- regardless of what enemy you're facing, Sam is going to charge. He's going to keep moving forward. And that's something that Tolkien witnessed in the non-commissioned soldiers, uh, not the officers, but the common privates and corporals that he fought with in World War I when he was an officer in the trenches at the front, uh, the Western Front. Uh, He really admired their qualities more so than the the officers. So I, I really like Sam a lot. And Faramir, I think, is my of the human characters is probably my favorite. He's the scholar knight. So, you know, I, I think I can call myself a scholar by this point. Boromir's brother, right? Boromir's brother, yeah. Yep. Knight, probably not. You know, maybe someday. Uh, I got to write a letter of recommendation for knighthood, which was successful. That's cool. I wrote, I wrote to the queen recommending a fellow historian for honors, uh, and he did receive those. But uh, I, I think that, you know, a lot of us little boys aspired to be knights and to be the to be the scholar knight the the guy who doesn't you know claim glory for himself who says Aragorn's much better than me Boromir's better than me you know I'm just trying to do my best and be honest and serve my city and preserve my history and my culture that really appeals to me I don't know what it says about me but Gandalf 100 percent over here <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's a high high uh, uh, mark to, to reach. Yeah, you mentioned something, and since I got you in a room, I can ask you this question because I've always been curious about it. I know Tolkien pushed back against the idea that Lord of the Rings was an allegory um, for especially the Second World War, yep. but it kind of seems to match up a whole lot to what happened in the Second World War. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think there's a, a commentary on events that are occurring in the 1940s, the late 30s and 40s, in the Lord of the Rings. So Tolkien was a soldier in the First World War, and, and when the Second World War broke out, he um, was in Oxford. Uh, he actually took courses as a uh, code breaker uh, and thought he was going to be performing services for the, the British uh, intelligence agency. He didn't end up doing that. Um, he taught, I think, some officers some courses during the war, but most importantly, he had uh, all but one of his children um, were engaged in fighting or serving in the, in the war. And uh, he was very worried about their safety and trying to keep their spirits up when they were um, in places like uh, Africa and, and Europe uh, during the war. So he was thinking quite a lot about it. Um, he was proud of his German heritage and yet not proud of the Nazis, not a fan of, of what Hitler was doing. And he made that clear to his German publishers who were trying to lure him into um, into commercial relationships. He, he made it clear that he um, was uh, w- w- did not share the anti-Semitic beliefs of, of the Nazis. So uh, some of that, you know, you kind of uncover as, as you get to know Tolkien. But I, I think you can see in the way that Sauron 
and Gandalf differently talk to the political entities and how they talk to each other. I think Tolkien is is talking about European relations during during that period, talking about how politicians can say one thing and mean another. Um, so I think in those ways, does the ring equal the atomic bomb? Probably not. Uh, I think the ring is a more general symbol of power, of political and military power. And it's enticing to use power when you think you're going to do good. But remember, everybody thinks that. Uh, and so the hesitancy to grasp power, whether it's a title uh, or a weapon, I think is a very, very important lesson of the Lord of the Rings. Yeah, 100%. I mean, you know, Frodo failed to throw it in the volcano, right? Absolutely. That's the that's the, the saddest thing is you're rooting for Sam and Frodo. And, you, you know, you just know he's going to do the right thing. Frodo has grown morally, too. And he gets to the literally to the edge. And he says, I will not do this thing. I cho- do not choose to do this. In other words, I have free will, but I'm not going to destroy the ring after all of that. This is a totally speculative question, but I think it might be the most fair criticism of those books. Okay, so the eagles go get them. <laughs> Once they throw the ring in there, why didn't the eagles just take the ring in the first place? Because you can't command eagles is the simple answer. Okay, <laughs> the eagles are their own thing. They sometimes come to the aid of Gan- Gandalf, especially, um, but you cannot command them to do so. So we don't know what they would have done with the ring. Um, but yeah, a lot of people have an image of in their head of an eagle holding Gandalf as he swoops over. Uh, Mount Doom and drops the ring in, into the crack of Doom. Tolkien knew there was a little kind of loophole there, uh, and his best answer for that was just um, e- eagles have their own morality, their own sense of politics and everything, and they would have just stayed out of it. Okay, okay. Well, you know, I think one of the exciting things about being in the Honors College, for these students anyway, is how accessible the faculty and staff are to them. In fact, I think one of the fundamental benefits is the kind of support they have. Um, can you talk to me a little bit about when you're engaging with a student, how you like to advise them, or or maybe even some specific examples of students you're especially proud of that you've come across during your time here? Sure. This time of year is uh, a lot of the fellowship deadlines are coming up. So for the national prestigious fellowships like the Rhodes Scholarship, the Marshall, the Gates Cambridge, uh, that is a busy, busy time in the Honors College. Several of us are involved in mentoring students towards fellowship applications. I'm the institutional endorser for the Rhodes Scholarship, for example. So I'm interviewing students to decide whether we will endorse their application. And that's a long process. It really has begun since their freshman year for many of them, getting to know them and putting opportunities in their way so that they can amass, build up the kind of a resume it takes to be a a Rhodes applicant, let alone a Rhodes scholar. Uh, That's an exciting thing. Uh, I remember thinking about these when I was an undergraduate student and thinking, there's no way I could be a Rhodes scholar. I'm not even going to try. And and now to be really actively engaged in that process, and we have amazing fellowship advisors like Dr. David Hoffman, Dr. Tommy Anderson, and this year our own... Rhodes Scholar returned to the nest, uh, Field Brown, who will be working with the students. But I'm the one that does the uh, official interview for the endorsement. And 
that is a time in which I get to have great conversations with great students. And I really look forward to that, that time hearing a student tell their story and construct a narrative and talk about what Oxford or Cambridge or, or Stanford or wherever, what a place like that could do for their career trajectory, for their professional goals, for their ambitions to allow our very modest students, and they really are at Mississippi State, to be ambitious, to dream big. And, you know, something I've absolutely seen here during my time in the Honors College is the fact that students use this institution within Mississippi State to use Mississippi State as a platform to get anywhere in the world they want to get to. And that's pretty common around here, wouldn't you say? That's absolutely true. So, um, again, if you take Field Brown as an example, uh, born and raised in Vicksburg, Mississippi, comes to Starkville, uh, to be an undergraduate student at Mississippi State University. He goes on our summer Oxford program, uh, gets to be a student at Oxford then. Senior year, he applies for a Rhodes Scholarship and, uh, and wins and goes to the University of Oxford. But that's just the beginning of his story because while as a Rhodes Scholar, he got to see much of the world through the, through the Rhodes Scholarship. He got uh, sponsored study in France. Uh, and when he completed his his master's degree at Oxford, uh, then he came back to the United States and and started uh, doctor work at Harvard University. Uh, so Field alone has seen much of the world, but um, we've had students who have studied at Chinese universities. We had uh, have a lot of students who've done work in Italy, uh, the University of Turin, uh, Turin or Torino, um, and worked in the community uh, with refugees in the community in Turin, Italy, um, Africa, where we've got a lot of students who are engaged as engineers, uh, engineers without borders, as engineer engineering projects that Mississippi State are doing in African nations um, to uh, secure water, uh, water safety issues, um, and, 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 and biochemistry students who go over and get to work on big game get to 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 work with large animals in animal refuges so you know literally every corner we've got students well the again and that's absolutely true um and you know i think a lot of people when they first encounter mississippi state which is you know famously known as an engineering school and an agricultural school um the idea of having these deep dives into humanities and how those can affect those kinds of career paths sometimes they get a little confused when you talk to students who are going for a more technical kind of degree or or a more you know straight math kind of degree why should they care about the kind of programming that we have in the honors college well that's a good question um and we of course have students in all majors across the, uh, the university, humanities, social sciences, natural sciences, applied sciences. Um, but we do have a, a lot of engineering students uh, and uh, pre-med students, for example, in the Honors College. They're not all alike in their career aspirations. So many will, for example, be going to medical school and get into some of the best medical schools in the country, get fellowships, and that's great. Um, a lot of those students will fall in love with research, though, and they may have started out thinking, I'm, I'm just going to medical school and end up being fascinated by biological science research and end up getting an MD, PhD or straight PhD 
going down an academic path. So we want to provide opportunities to allow them to discover that about themselves. We also have a lot of students from very different degree backgrounds, including um, engineering, um, chemical engineering, for example, uh, who get interested in energy resources and the environment and the impact of machines and chemicals on the environment. And you can't really do anything without with that unless you study policy and politics. And, st- and so they, they remain engineering students, but the next step in their career might be an environmental engineering program or a public straight public policy degree. So by you know sending them to places like Carnegie Mellon and Oxford and Cambridge to go to conferences, present research or study, they see new ways um, of envisioning their future, um, taking them to Washington, D.C., where I came from, where I spent the previous 15 years of my career, uh, where they get to do internships uh, in industry and on Capitol Hill and various places. They get to see that the impact of their creativity and their engineering skills and all of that, um, the impact that that has in the greater world of politics and budgets and that kind of thing. So, you know, there is not one path for an engineer or a pre-med student. There are all kinds of opportunities available and humanities courses and social sciences courses too uh, help them see the many different paths that they could they could take. And I think it's also fair to say, and you know, perhaps in a more cutthroat kind of, uh, of thinking, is that these students who do very, very well in their departments, there are a lot of other people who do very, very well in their departments too. Sure. And getting yourself out of your lane and expressing interest in something you know that may not at first glance seem to line directly up with whatever your degree is in can help you stand out from the rest of the pack in a significant way. And That's it seems right. to me that a lot of our students who've gone on to do remarkable things do it on the backs of those kinds of experiences. Well, I, I think what marks an honor student is they're an engineer who really enjoys reading Plato and Thomas Aquinas, uh, or they're a history major who um, is taking the extra math or science course. So yes, you can be very good in your major uh, and not be in the honors college, but an honors student I think has often the communication skills, the writing skills, the critical thinking skills to be able to go beyond what the department is asking of them into these other areas and to take coursework whether it's an, a minor, a second minor, or a second major, um, that enables them to create one of these kind of interdisciplinary career paths that I talked about. Well, Dr. Schneider, I really appreciate you talking to me. But before we go, I would like you to tell me in your, in your best elevator speech <laughs> kind of mindset, why should anybody think about joining the Shackles Honors College? Why wouldn't you? <laughs> Thank you. How's, how's that for that's, brief? That's pretty good, sir. That's pretty good. Um, well, folks, thank you so much for joining us today on Honorable Mentions, a production of the Shackles Honors College at Mississippi State University. I'm going to go ahead and throw this out there. If you've got any questions about Lord of the Rings or, C- or C.S. Lewis, please send them to me, and we'll get Dr. Snyder back in here one day to go over and answer any questions that you might have. Again, my name is Wade Leonard. I'm the Outreach Coordinator for the Shackles Honors College at Mississippi State University, Mississippi's largest and, I would argue, most prestigious honors college. 
For more information about the Shackles Honors College, please visit honors.msstate.edu. Thank you for downloading us, and we'll see you next time. Thanks, Dr. Snyder. Thank you.